0: <laughs> Hello everyone, this is Ethan Heisler and welcome to the Bank Treasure Newsletter Podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, with us today is Jonathan Newen, Jonathan Newen, a leading 25year expert in cybersecurity. I also have an old old colleague of mine, Tom Daly. Tom is the CEO and founder of New Prism. Me, Prism, is focused on consumer data, the information that you put on the internet when you buy something that suddenly is taken and made money out of. So, Jonathan, tell me a little bit about your career, how you got interested in cybersecurity to begin with.
1: Well, well, you know, way back in the day, I I was actually trained as a diplomat for the U.S. government. And when I exited that, I got a call from a recruiter, what was then called Bell Atlantic, that said, hey, you know something about firewalls and network security. And that began my journey into cybersecurity. And, you know, my career parallels what we've seen in, in cybersecurity. We started off back in the day, about 1997, with this idea that we could harden the walls and deepen the moats and put all the good stuff on the inside and keep all the bad folks out. And that just didn't really work for any number of reasons. One, because we became more integrated and interconnected and became a much more digital society and economy, which, which means we have to open up. In fact, the goal of cybersecurity really isn't about shutting things down, it's about opening up. And so I spent the better part of 25 years working on different technologies and then platforms and then strategies Ultimately, on how to better detect and prevent data breaches. And the irony of all that is that we began in our careers with this idea that we could not only detect, but prevent data breaches. Now, in 2024, we operate from the outset with the idea that we assume breach. So (laughs) I I laughingly say that we're the only industry that fails upwards. So So we start
0: up with with that idea, right? When we talk about cybersecurity, what exactly does that term encompass? Because you're talking about data breaches, but what, I mean, I think there's, it's a broader sense than just great data breach. What, what is that? Cybersecurity now is
1: about risk management is it is an exercise. And if you look at the standards and regulations in our industry, 80% of them will say specifically, you shall undertake a reasonable level of due care in the identification and management of risk. So cybersecurity is about managing and protecting and ensuring the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of data, what we call the CIA triad. And so that means your networks, your systems, your platforms, your partners, your employees, it's everything that touches and interacts with processes, handles, curates, and stores data. So cybersecurity is about identifying and managing risks. That that's where we are today.
0: And Tom, how did you get the last time we worked together a million years ago, you were in the corporate bond world. You were a Wall Street bond salesman. How did you get from that to me prism?
2: That's right. It's, it's sort of an un, unconventional story. Having spent you know, two odd decades on Wall Street, mostly in the fixed income and, and, and big public markets, and then finally sort of in the management of those markets for a large multinational bank, I had a lot of experience in the regulation of those gigantic markets. And I found the consumer data economy to be an interesting parallel to financial markets in, in that on the one hand, there are lots of little assets that are bought and sold every day. And that's the the, the virtual footprint of each individual uh, compared to a unique stock or derivative or bond of a company. And it's amazing to me how informed consent and clean title uh, are, are bedrock uh, foundational elements of of, of the big uh, financial markets that we all enjoy here in, in, in the West compared to the consumer data market, which is completely opaque, and the asset, which is really uh, kind of the derivative of the behavior of each individual consumer, is bought and sold by people who are not the consumer, and the consumer themselves have absolutely no actual participation in the in the trading of that asset. It's kind of like for me, it's, it's as if a real estate agent bought and sold your house without you ever even having touched the title of the property. And th- that to me is, is not is not just a problem because of ethical considerations. It's also just an awful way to structure a marketplace. It has to be inefficient. It cannot possibly be inefficient because you have one gigantic group of very, very powerful companies that have all of the information about the transaction of this asset. And then you have tens of millions of people who have no idea about the value or the transactions around uh, their own virtual footprint. So the asymmetry of information, the opacity of it means that the consumer data economy in a lot of ways is intrinsically, utterly unstable. So what does a new do? We basically believe that that asset has, has value. The expression of that takes many forms. In some cases, it's cyber threat actors using data that's hidden in some way to break into a company and steal other things from the company, or to manipulate the behavior of an individual. What me, Prism does is we at our core believe that an individual's data is, is their data, it's, it's their property, and they have a, a natural, if not constitutional right to ownership of that property and privacy around it. And so what we do is, you know, me, Prism actually Built technology that scans the 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 internet for our customers, individual personally identifiable information, particularly in the data broker market, and then we we, we we remove it from the internet. You talk about the fact that I truly have ownership of data.
0: Amazon Prime loves me. I'm 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 a constant customer, but I, I guess I leave my data DNA wherever I go and, and somebody's making money of that. But when you talk about this ownership, wh- what does that really mean? Well,
2: yeah, part of the problem with with how we think about the, the consumer data economy is that uh, a lot of these modes are brand new and there are limitations to the language so in many cases we kind of have to be a little bit metaphorical in terms of what we're talking about the data that is your virtual footprint so everything that you do on the internet is recorded everywhere you go everything you say it's recorded in one way or another that's the that that's sort of raw material of the data economy all those ones and zeros that are measurements of things that you've done in your past then that data is is collected by your phone company it's collected by instagram it's being collected by zoom right now on this call and on and on and on that's a big pile of raw material right there companies buy that for various purposes and then they use it for manufactured commercial prediction products or other things that they can then use to make money Target advertising is a perfect example. I, you know, we're we're looking for middle-aged Floridians in blue shirts right now. The internet has found you. The auction has now sold your eyeballs to an advertiser in real time. And that shows up on your web browser in in, in moments. So it, it can be used for things and money changes hands. Now, in those circumstances, other things have to happen. Taxes have to be paid. Regulations have to come in place and make sure that there is. So those are the things that are sort of evolving right now. We also know that where there is value, there are bad actors and that's what happens when there's money flying around. Suddenly there's, there's all sorts of uh, financial incentives to do, to do harm, to steal, to, to do things that, that, that maybe are profitable, but completely unethical. And that's why we have cyber infrastructure. We have tools like Meprism that reduce the amount of that data out there because it does have value so that it can't be used either to harm an individual or steal from a company. Jonathan, let's talk
0: about the evolution of data security, data value. We've talked about the EU seems to be ahead of where the U S is. Give us a bird's eye view on the history here.
1: Yeah. So the, 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 history of data use and, and data explosion really mirrors the history of the internet and in our societies. In the last 25 years, we've become more interconnected than ever before. As, as you said, we are more digital now in the way we conduct commerce and entertain ourselves than ever before. Uh, and so that generates a huge volume of data, as, as Tom alluded to earlier as well. Uh, that explosion of data and interconnectedness has given rise to first machine learning, uh, the ability to not only collect, but digest huge volumes of, of disconnected data. From machine learning, we went to AI, to try to get more precise, more insights that we can leverage that data. And what you saw in the regulatory world is that yes, the European Union were amongst the first uh, group of nations that began to recognize that we as individuals create and hold our personal identifiable information as Tom alluded to, but as enterprises, we are custodians of that data. Enterprises that collect and share and curate and use that data become custodians of someone else's intellectual property and that opens up all types of liabilities and compliance concerns and that's why you see the rise of people like chief privacy officers chief risk officers and so it's not only the european union but it's across the u.s in seven states uh, in california leading off with the california consumer privacy rights act and its corollaries across nevada the northeast and virginia so we're all beginning to recognize that if we collect store, curate, use, and trade someone's PII, we are custodians of that data. And we are on the hook to not only look after that, but if that person, let's say Jonathan says to Marriott, says, hey Marriott, I need you to show me how you collect, how you curate, how you store, how you trade, and use my data, you need to be able to tell me within X number of days. Or if I tell you, oh, by the way, I don't allow you to store any of that data. You have to destroy that data and show me evidence of death destruction through a third party attestation. You may have to do that. And so what we begin seeing today is a very complex world, uh, as Tom alluded to, where you have near instantaneous transactions because the the interval between each session, the greater that gets the the less compelling experience. So these consumer transactions are all about near real-time transactions that utilize extraordinarily accurate and personal information. And that's why at the end of your sessions, you get that pop-up or the beginning that says, hey, I accept the the use of these cookies for performance, for analytics, for marketing. That's all driven by the the regulatory environment. And, and, And because of that, whether you know it or not, your data is being brokered. It's being traded. For instance, if you walk into a theme park. When you buy that ticket, you give up rights to your images being collected in that theme park. If you use social media in many cases, you've surrendered your privacy rights in exchange for the convenience and value of using that site, right? And so all that now has to be told to you upfront, but you begin to see that for financial services institutions, it becomes highly complex. It sounds elegant if you could do it on an individual basis, but you've got hundreds of millions of customers, right? And to Tom's point, the sophistication of the attacks has advanced. The last data point that was publicly available was the, was an FBI report at the end of 2022. So we're already dated, right? That showed 254 million records that had been compromised. We're well north of that number today. And so that's why we, we assume breach.
0: Now I always assume that data was being encrypted and if data was being encrypted, that it would be difficult to steal because unless you had the cypher key, you couldn't unlock the data. So can you talk to what this DNA that I leave?
1: So We've been talking about simple fundamental cybersecurity hygiene for 20 years. Mm -hmm. To this day, we're still talking about patch management, talking about configuration management, security awareness, training and encryption, right? Multi-factor authentication. The practical reality is this we're failing on basics and so Not only are, in many cases, the information not encrypted because it inhibits the performance, right? So most enterprises have to make a decision and some information is not encrypted. In fact, when you look at ransomware today, some 43% of all ransomware victims, especially financial services, will pay the ransom. Not so much because they want the decryption key. What they're really worried about is someone, you know, leaking out or publishing compromised PII. And so they're paying that data. And so again, it's about how do you really understand where all the data that you've collected is who owns that data? What's the criticality of that data? And so some information, some data, unfortunately isn't encrypted. Right. And so you, you still have that perennial problem.
0: So if my data is not encrypted, what can companies do to protect their data? Well, the
1: first part is to understand just whether you're an individual or an enterprise, what? What data do I have? What's my, if I'm at a person, my personal uh, identity, what types of PII do I have? And then if you're using someone like, like me Prism, find out how many data brokers actually are out there holding and trading my data. So I I use a me prism and I found out there are 10 data brokers out there that have my data that are, that are selling that today and trading that. And, and that's just the ones in those databases. And if right? you
0: act on this now, then what happens? Do you make money out of, do you stop? I mean, again, I'm getting back to this. What is this value yeah. of my data beyond what you use it for?
1: So the, the, the most of the cases, if, if I want to remove that, I would have to, if I'm doing it myself, I would have to hire a lawyer and send a cease and desist letter to each and every one of those data brokers and then con- continuously check to see whether they've received that, that certified mailing, whether they've taken action on that mailing, Uh, and it would be so expensive to do that. Right. But personally, the way I benefit from my data are typically through things like affinity points, through credit cards, through mileage accounts for airlines,
0: I, I'm just thinking of it more like my garbage gets picked up periodically during the week. Yep. Right. Let's say the garbage people took my garbage. Yeah, and they turned their, my garbage into gold. Would I be entitled to make money from the gold that they made it from? I threw it out. I was really happy. They now you said I guess what oh. you're saying it is, well, for the convenience of them taking your garbage away, you give up your right to this gold. And, oh
1: no, when that in that example you've, you've you've thrown it out, it's no longer your property. It's it's a pre- legal precedence is set. But That's when how I police when allow-
0: I go on the internet and I buy a product, don't I? I intentionally leave my DNA footprint wherever That's I go. Your,
1: your purchasing history is, in, is your intellectual property and it is traded and brokered. I guarantee you, you, your purchasing history for the last 25 years is in somebody's database and it's actively being brokered so that you can find all the middle-aged men on Long Island who have this income set so that you can go to the following brands and sell that data. It is known down by the zip code, with a high level of confidence interval, showing my MBA, (laughs) so you have a 99.97 level of confidence interval Mm -hmm. that Ethan lives in this zip code. He probably lives in a four- to five-bedroom home. His median income is is in excess of $350,000 a year. He's a type of person that has a proclivity for imported German cars and not Audis, so it's either BMW or Mercedes that is that's out there it's already being traded and in most cases and i did not
0: tell him any of this stuff audience
1: (laughs) so there is value it's just like your intellectual property is 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 like michael jackson's uh uh, content and, and music uh you know to this day elvis makes more money on on his music dead than he ever did alive and so it poses an interesting question does our intellectual property live and generate value long after we're gone? And the answer is yes. I mean, I, I was on a call with uh, someone in marketing at a major financial services company, and they were saying they use purchasing history for things like siding and paint in New Jersey, going back to 1910 to better understand how to market and target their products today. So so
0: yeah, it poses some interesting questions. Tom. Jonathan was talking earlier about duties of, of the employer towards data. And there's tons of data that they're responsible for. What does the private sector, how does the private sector get involved in that? I guess that gets closer to where, how you got into the position that you're in.
2: Yeah, it, it's a it's a very big problem. It's a problem that's, that's changing very rapidly. There's a lot of things that have to be done and it's gonna require lots of different people with lots of different types of specialization to get it done. You know, banks are still where where criminals wanna to go to get money. Although the Wild West is not, you know, stagecoaches and, and and six guns. It's hackers of all ages all across the planet. Uh, the targets still are the banks in many cases. And I think as, as, as Jonathan was, was, was pointing out, the data is, it, there's lots of it and it's it's becoming more and more powerful. Not only is more and more data being generated all the time, but the efficacy of the data because of the application of AI and other tools is in many ways adding all this additional danger and leverage to the data that these companies have so the thing about banks and again this is back to my last experience sort of as a manager in a bank big financial institutions are really really good at protecting their customers interests uh, protecting against insider trading unlawful uh, movement of data chinese walls all this kinds of they're very very good at embargoing different parts of an organization from other parts. Why? Because the data, the information, the unique information that investment banks have can be used in powerful and sometimes bad ways. All the data that they have about their customers is, is it's the same thing, really. It's not necessarily a bank account, Tom Daly's bank account, which is a series of ones and zeros that says, this is how much net worth is. It's all this other information that we have about, you know, my purchasing proclivities or the taxes on, I- I've paid or places I've lived, things like that. That's also an extremely valuable bit of information, ones and zeros that pertain to me. They also have all of the members of the, the, the these financial institutions have the same tracking of data about them, also extremely, extremely valuable and useful. And also that data is what the bank robbers of today will use to sort of break into those institutions and then steal money. So. On the one hand, banks and certainly in a post Dodd-Frank world have demonstrated they're really, really good at thinking about compliance. They're really, really good about worrying about regulatory burdens, about being very, very capable custodians of their customers' assets and their customers' data. They know this because they know that the data is dangerous. They know that they are fertile hunting ground for threat actors, so they have to take care of it. What does that mean? Well, it means there's industry standards around what are best practices to make sure that the bad guys cannot get into your company, get into your organization, get into your, your databases, steal bits of that information so that they can then steal more of it, uh, damage the company, ransom, uh, customers' assets, things like that it's a it's a high stakes game so how do we fit in well there's lots of different ways in which data can be used to harm an individual and organization and a lot of brain damage goes into how to harden the risk surface of an institution from the board of directors down to the cfo and under the cfo you've got a chief technology officer a chief information security officer guys like that who it's 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 a full-time job to make sure that the alpha v russian cyber spy gang that's hitting hospitals and financial institutions and colonial pipeline, that whatever sneaky moves they have to break into organizations are ones that you've thought about and that if they've been put into place by by competitors, you're doing the same to make sure that you've got at least as good of an ADT home security system as your neighbor next door.
0: Well, why can't I as a company just institute a firewall block on all my employees to not use the internet except in approved locations? Wouldn't that solve most of my problems?
1: Well, you you could, but you would uh, reduce productivity as well. In certain countries, you're not allowed to do that. In places like Germany, they have a legacy of of authoritarian government. You're not allowed to monitor employee use at all. So employees
0: can go on uh, pornography websites.
1: Employees can actually opt out of internal cybersecurity controls and you can't log their activities. Wow. So there are all types of complexities involved in that. In fact, there is in cybersecurity, we're always trying to balance the need to, to close off ways of getting into the organization without shutting down the business. In fact, the object of the exercise is how do I safely open up the enterprise? And so. When we look at the strategies you utilize today based around this, this strategy called zero trust that has been around since 2009. It's this idea that only legitimate users and things should be able to access only what they need to do their jobs. Mm-hmm. Now that sounds, you know, elegant and simple and straightforward, but it's hard to actually implement. And, and the reason why we implement zero trust is because today we now operate with the idea, assume that you've been breached. In fact, there are four questions that are asked at the advent of a data breach or doing the investigations. It is, what did you know? When did you know it? What did you do about it? And what and now was it reasonable? The reasonable care standard was established after Equifax by the Northern Federal District Judge in, in, in the Georgia. Go back over that case for us. So in Equifax, they had a, a data breach that was a result of a known vulnerability in Apache strike which they had identified. The security team had identified the vulnerability and had asked the IT team to implement a patch to patch that that vulnerability so it couldn't be exploited. For whatever reason, that patch wasn't applied. And then all of the compensating controls like a a integrated or internally segmented firewall that was in place, its digital certificate expired as well. And so the judge ruled that because they knew the vulnerability existed, because they would issued a request with a patch to be implemented. Uh, and because the compensating controls had also failed, that Equifax did not reasonably attend to manage, identifying and managing risk. In fact, the reasonable care standard comes to English common law, 16th century almost, right? It is what would a reasonable person do knowing what he or she knows at that moment in time. So, think about what Thomas said. At this point in time, we know that cybersecurity is a huge challenge. For financial services, they spend about the third largest budget for IT on cybersecurity. We also know that breaches are inevitable. In fact, we assume breaches are a standard operating procedure. We also know that there are people like ransomware as a service, distributed denial service as a service, that whether you're talking about nation states, organized crime, it is a very high threat operating environment in IT today, right? So if we know that and we assume breach, then I have always argued, what are we doing about compromise? Because if you assume breach, you have to assume that your customers, your employees, your partners, PII, has been compromised. And so in cybersecurity today, we spend so much focus on prevention and detection, what we call left of the boom or the detonation of malware, the incident, right? We try to detect and prevent and then we say to the right of the detonation or the incident that we have incident response plans, right? But I often ask CISOs and CIOs, especially financial services, if you assume breach and you do, that's why you're using zero trust principles, are you also assuming compromise? And what are you doing about that, right? And so in cybersecurity is a maturity curve that starts off with blind because we don't know what's happening, we start buying technologies to instrument ourselves and we become reactive. And then once we become reactive, there's a hope and prayer that we'll use machine learning and AI to be done, become proactive and then predictive ultimately. And so, in a, in, a, in an operating environment where the threat actors and simple human error are counting for, you know, eighty-three percent of all data breaches are caused by just simple human error. So we know breaches not only inevitable, but they're happening, and in most cases, organizations aren't even detecting them. And so, <laughs> so. So then I say, how do you ensure to your stakeholders, not only the government and the regulators, but to your customers, your partners, your employees, and the people that rate your organization that you are undertaking a reasonable level of due care in managing PII and ensuring the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of PII? And so that's really, we asked, how did I get interested in Meet Prism? Because as, as a CISO, I think MePrism is is one of those unique capabilities that allows me or any CISO to demonstrate to my stakeholders, here's what I've done. I've implemented reasonable security controls and technologies and strategies to the left of the detonation. But also, I've also done things like pen testing, incident response plans. But I'm using a service which allows me to actually help me better understand today where the PII that I'm the custodian of is actually being brokered. Right. And, and so that that's, that's a nice tool to have.
0: Do you foresee this PII ultimately going on an exchange? Could it be something that's actively traded where I would actually benefit as the owner of that that, PII from that?
1: You're 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 many cases you're opting in when you see those pop-ups already, but there are browsers today that that you can use and say, I'm only going to use this browser. Brave is one of them, right? that says in exchange for brave, being able to collect and market and curate my browsing history and my purchasing proclivities that I'm going to get rewards. I'm going to get affinity, some sort of affinity, like an attention token. Uh, which I then can turn to use at other places. But then that also comes with risk management exercise because then that organization is a custodian of your data and it has to ensure that your data is reasonably protected. Though I think the the genie is already out of the bottle.
0: Is that what keeps you up at night, Jonathan? About cybersecurity and data privacy? What what, what keeps you most up at night about this stuff? That doesn't keep me
1: up at night. Uh, other things keep me up (laughs) naming my children, but but we all as a security professional realize that it's not a hermetic seal, that cybersecurity is not perfect, but it has to be reasonable. And it's very easy for me to go to sleep at night if I can demonstrate on demand that I've implemented to a reasonable level of due care, the identification and management of risk in my enterprise. And that's how I can tell my leadership team that I've got them.
0: How do you see machine learning and AI we've talked about that before yeah how does that come into this whole conversation around privacy well machine learning
1: and, and machine learning is how you get to become proactive remember that that maturity stage where you go from blind to reactive to proactive machine learning and its early iterations of mathematical algorithmic based approaches. Uh, are designed to allow you to become more proactive in the application of those insights from all that data that we're generating now, right? AI goes one step further and replicates human behavior and it begins to become predictive about, well, Jonathan this year really enjoys Orvis fishing products, but Orvis fishing products are kind of mid-level. I bet you next year. At his age and his career progression, he's going to look at more marquee brands. He's going to go look at Sage or he's going to look at some of these British like Hardy Brothers products, those types of things. AI will become more effective on our side to create better experiences. AI on the adversary side will do this, collect all the information on Ethan. Let's say now follows Ethan on LinkedIn, understands Ethan's vocabulary in any given day is about 130 words, then looks at Ethan's um, Facebook postings and looks at video imagery of Ethan. And now I have Ethan's language, his Long Island accent. I can take, deconstruct that and create a deep fake. And using that deep fake, now I can send a video call, video message to his bank, his employer, his boss, his children. I can send a, a, a note that says, hey, I've, I've broken down on 95 and I need you to wire $300 to get
0: me out of this right now.
1: AI will make it very very hard discern what is real and what is not
0: okay you've hit where i wanted this to go can somebody use my innocently left data dna wherever i've gone into the internet and use it to enter my bank account or my company's bank account yeah you clearly said <laughs> yeah that. actually yes but here's one question that i have is a fail safe to that yeah which is okay please wire me 300 dollars. great ethan you have your cell phone it's mm-hmm. going to send you a two digit or four digit yeah. authorization code oh i can't do that yeah. breaks down doesn't that create the fail safe to all of this at some point i have to open the door
1: well it depends if you are you have to think about this if you are a high net worth individual or a government official and you are the target of a specific campaign of attacks. It's not just one attack, it's not one method of, of compromise. You know, you may have had a SIM swap attack on your phone, so that doesn't work there. What you have to put in place are are mechanisms, multiple layers of defenses that negate the possibility of that happening. You know, one of the best things as individuals we can do is, is really not about credit monitoring, it's about credit freezes, right? It says that even if my data is compromised, no one can open, A line of credit in my name. One of the things we need to do from the enterprise side of the house is security awareness training. We still talk about basics, configuration management, asset management, security awareness training, multi-factor authentication, security awareness training that says under no circumstances will the CEO of this bank call the finance department or email to the finance department or send a video chat to the finance department that says, I need you to make the following changes.
0: Those sound like good governance things at all companies. be instituting, don't you agree?
1: I agree, but then again, you find yourself saying that most ransomware victims are being victimized by known variations of ransomware. And when you deconstruct the largest breaches in in our history, they weren't the result of an advanced persistent threat actor. They weren't the result of anything more than failures in in security hygiene, the lack of multi-factor authentication, the lack of actual monitoring. I can go on and tell you about failures in the intelligence community and the financial services and all verticals, right? So it's, it, there is no one silver bullet, but there are multiple ways that you can manage that risk. So it goes back at the end of this call, the listener should ask themselves, So what did I know? What do I know now? Well, I know that just about any organization, large or small can be breached and the data compromise. I know that there's no silver bullet. I also know that they're going to ask me about what did I know? When did I know it? What did you do about it? And was it reasonable? And so if all I'm doing is focusing to the left of the incident and not enough to the right post-incident, not only mitigation, but remediation to really know on a continuous basis that that data was actually removed and not re, you know, re, redeployed or re-uploaded, is that reasonable, right? And so that's that's why I, whenever a CISO or a security professional goes to their board and, and asks for money, right? I always tell them this to say, the answer is, not whether you have enough, is whether it's reasonable. Now that you've informed, in fact, if you look at the SEC guidance the 8K filings about the, the requirement to declare a, if a breach has had a material effect on the enterprise within four days, how do you identify what is a material impact? And so for all enterprises, it comes down to, is this reasonable? And that's a decision that's made by the CFO, by the COO, the CIO, and the CISO, general counsel, and in many cases, outside counsel.
0: What I I was thinking of is that if I'm a company, could I come to you as the SEC or my regulator and say, well, this is what we did. All of my employees' data, I made anonymous. I stripped the name from it. You don't have a social security number. We have that, that's all hidden, that's all taken apart, but we use the rest of the data. Is that reasonable? Well,
1: you can use the data and someone like the SEC or your risk manager is gonna ask you, If I put all that data into an AI platform and combine that data with other data sets that are available, could I reconstruct a complete set of information about that employee? And the answer is yes. So I I, I think it behooves us. And as we think, this is why why data and AI ethics is the number three board concern, Mm -hmm. because in order to generate value in this type of economy, you have to use that data. And so how do we ensure that we are collecting, curating, storing, commercializing ultimately destroying that data in an ethical way and in a transparent way and then ultimately how do we manage that risk and so there's the genie's out of the bottle you can't just say i'm not going to use ai it's going to be used it's going to be used usually in financial services private versions not the public versions of course but yeah and then i would then i would say on top of all those things that i've done to to manage the risk of that pii being compromised you know i found a way to actually scour the internet to see if I've missed something and oh, by the way, we always miss something because I don't know of any CIO CISO that says, I know at a 99.97 level of confidence interval, everything that's on my network, every edge on my network. In fact, our networks are expanding every day,
0: right? When I, I do see this, my, my kids have showed me this, that you can go on the internet and have an incognito system. Does that work?
1: It does work to some degree, but then again, it's about scale and how do you ensure uniformity? We're talking about, especially financial services, you operate in on a global basis, your partners, your third-party suppliers. There's no one thing that fits all. It's about understanding and managing risk.
0: So I could describe that as the 9-11 syndrome. So it's not that they go through LaGuardia or JFK Airport. They go through a Portland main airport. Breach yeah, they the go through your supplier.
1: Way. Why don't you ask some of the major retailers who were compromised because of a contractor? Why don't you ask the Office of Personnel Management that was compromised by a supplier? And that's why in, in the DOD, and the federal government, you have a cyber maturity certification model now, right? And so demonstrating all those things around reasonable care, that's why you just alluded to the fact that we, we live and operate in very porous networks, and we're more interconnected than ever before. So the challenges that... How do you manage risks? And so I always say, look, do everything you can in traditional methods, but also go one step beyond, go one step beyond just your incident response plan. And, and that's why as a CISO, why I would definitely use this me prism capability, because right. it allows me to do that at scale and not only scale, but consistently. Right.
0: There's some more conversation here, guys. I think we'll have to do this again, maybe have you, and I should have some of our other fintech companies that I've spoken to come on this podcast sometime. But Tom, I just wanted to, before we close, talk a little bit about what you see the industry that you're working in and where it's evolving. Is there, there was, the, the one thing that has really struck me about privacy tech is the profusion of companies in the space. Where do you see this industry headed?
2: Well, you know, I I think that there is, there's definitely room for some consolidation, but I think that cybersecurity in general as a discipline is so fluid and protein that it's very, very difficult to say at this point exactly what things are going to look like three months or three years from now. The rate of change is also increasing. You know, for example, we're talking about AI a few moments ago. The cyber team, cybersecurity team at IBM uh, did an interesting, interesting sort of research experiment earlier in the year where they they try to design an effective spear fishing campaign and their, their their team it takes them about 16 hours to put together a, a robust spear fishing campaign that's you you create a, a a dossier about the target organization you're going to go after you Collect enough information about them that that you can successfully trick them into thinking that you are a lawful entrant into their system using AI and the same kind of data. It now takes uh, about five minutes. So sixteen hours for a proficient one of the best cyber teams on the planet to make a successful phishing attack on an organization. Now using AI, it's five minutes. Same data. Yeah. What that means is for somebody like us, a company like Meprism there's others like us that we're we're mopping up the, the predicate for that attack. We're taking that data out of the environment so that the AI model can't scrape it up and leverage it into a repeating five minute attack, five minute attack, five minute attack. So I think the way that companies like ours fit into this, it's not completely clear how that's going to uh, pan out over the next year or two, but I can say that there's a need for more and more responses as the leverage gets introduced into the system, and that's AI. We are using AI on the other side for other aspects of the, attacking the problem, but those types of things are going to keep the, the market extremely unstable, very rapidly changing, and, and and hopefully up to the task of addressing what are more and more sophisticated, powerful, and emboldened cyber threat actors. It's, it's gonna be a busy couple of years, I'll, I'll tell you that, Ethan.
0: Well, as as both you and Jonathan have impressed on me today, this should be one of the leading issues in the board of directors for any financial institution out there today. So, I want to thank you both for joining me on the podcast, Tom Daly, CEO and founder of Me Prism, and Jonathan Newen, a leading cybersecurity expert and 25-year veteran in this space. So, I really want to thank you for your insights. I think everybody here learned a lot. Thanks, Ethan.